0: All right, welcome everyone. We're going to go ahead and try to get started here. We're already a little bit late. So we have a very important um, lesson to cover today, and I'm excited about it. You know, to introduce this a little bit, um, with all that's going on in the world, and particularly with the global context of religions that we live in, you know, let's just be honest. Uh, when you, it, you know, you hear about the jihadists, for instance, and, and there's a lot of discussion about the Islamic religion. Or you hear about the, the folks, you know, these, these other groups who, for instance, a health-wealth gospel kind of idea, you, the Joel Ed Epstein sort of folks that's on TV. And, and if you're going to be honest and you need to be honest, there's plenty of biblical evidence which would support Christian jihadism. There's, biblical, there's plenty of biblical evidence that would support the Joel Olsteins and their take on the scripture. There is. We just need to be honest. And, you know, sometimes we, we like to pretend. Sometimes we like to pretend like, you know, um, no, Christianity doesn't teach that. But we call the Bible, from Genesis to Revelations, the Christian Bible. This is our word of God. It's not just one half of it. It's the whole thing. And actually, that's really, really important. Because um, as you think about world religions, if your methodology of interpreting scripture is by proof texting scripture, what I mean by that is finding a passage that states something that, that would make you believe something. In other words, finding one passage... Or two or three, whatever. But if your method is to go to that passage and say, see, I'm not lying to you. I can't think of anything hardly that you couldn't uh, uh, support. I mean, there's plenty. So, for instance, um, the Holy Wars, the Crusades. I mean, should the church take up arms in order to spread the gospel by military force? Well, look at all those passages I have, that if you were to go turn and read them in the Bible, war between Israel and nations can be referred to as Yahweh's war. That's pretty direct, isn't it? God is often regarded as a warrior. And who goes into battle with the armies of Israel? More than the mere justification of what we call just war or defensive war, that's sort of the Christian orthodoxy, if you will, of, of the doctrine of war. Uh, We see in the Bible a command to war against the inhabiting nations for the sake of acquiring land, as instructed in these passages. And then, of course, this concept of a holy war. Were you all surprised last week in Esther when we heard about holy war and the rules of holy war, which was to totally annihilate whole people groups, to annihilate them? I mean, isn't that genocide? Genocide? I mean, come on, let's just, what are we talking about here? Um, is then the concept of holy war as to involve geopolitical military involvement applicable to us today? Should a country, for the sake of expanding its faith in war against other nations? Again, if your method in Bible interpretation, which is all too common when I watch pastors all over the evangelical spectrum, And all we're doing is picking a passage, and we're using that passage. I I just don't know a whole lot I couldn't say. I could probably take a passage somewhere and say just about everything I'd want to say. I hope you're beginning to get the picture of how dangerous that kind of, of a thing is. Of course, no, but we're going to go back to that later. What about health and wealth? Is it promised in the Bible that if you are holy and faithful that God will prosper you materially and physically? Well, of course it is. David once said that he never saw the righteous forsaken, nor their seed begging bread. And the law of God promises that if you keep the words of this covenant and do them, you may prosper in all that you do. Is this true for Christians today? Can we expect the righteous to prosper in material ways Does Christianity necessarily mean that your business is going to flourish to be a Christian? Is that what we're going to say? There's plenty of passages. What kind of hermeneutic, what kind of method would we use to do that? On and on and on. Israel. You heard today about Zion. Is Israel, the nation, still God's chosen people? Well, of course it is. Just go read First Kings six thirteen, and on it goes. We heard a passage today, in its own context, Zion was the great city on the hill, Jerusalem. Shouldn't we be supporting a pro foreign policy, a pro Israel foreign policy, as a country? Isn't that what we should be doing? If you're a Christian, I've heard candidates say that. Are they wrong? Should Christians have a bias for a pro-Israel position to our religious conviction, the nation of Israel is God's covenant people? Does the nation of Israel have a special status with God right now in comparison to other nations? Well, you can go to the Bible and say, of course it does. Or who participates in the Lord's Supper? If a person has sinned, should they not participate in the Lord's Supper unless they have stopped sinning? Well, even in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 5 If you come to the altar and you have sinned against your neighbor, etc., leave the altar. Don't participate. Go get that stuff settled up before you come to the altar. Is that that talking about the Lord's Supper? Should we be translating what was an old covenant law regarding the offering of sacrifices to now the new covenant? Why not? It's our Bible. All right, you getting the point? You know, this is really maybe the most important thing I know to say to you. If you read the Islamic uh, Quran, which I've read cover to cover and studied it, it, it there's one gaping difference, and that is when you read the Quran or re- when you read the other sayings of of the other Omars or the other religious religions Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. The one distinctive difference over and over and over again that just comes right at you is that this form of revelation, this, this revelation that we believe we have from God, is in the form of a narrative, a story, a, a redemptive history. We view the Bible in a very different way than just a collection of wisdom sayings. Or a collection of exhortations. Or a collection's of, of little historical tidbits spattered about. I mean, if you read the Quran, you could be in the early section of the book reading about a history that was way later in Muhammadism and then go back over here and see something much earlier. I mean, it's, it's a, just a collection of religious sacred writings. There's absolutely no... Abil- there, the method of interpreting... That book is wanting, then, why wouldn't this be legitimate? And again, I'm speaking to those of you and all of us who are living in a context of a global world that keeps hearing, and I hear it all the time. Well, you know, Christianity's no different. There's plenty of jihadism in Christianity, there's plenty of health, wealth, gospel theology in Christianity. And we hear all that, what are we gonna say? And so I hope you see what we're about to do here and the significance, not just for us internally but how we witness to the world. And again, what distinguishes our revelatory event from God is it is presented to us in the form of a story, in the form of a narrative that is a historical, redemptive narrative from beginning to end. And so therefore you're going to read it less like a collection of sacred writings and more, you're going to read it like a kind of mystery novel. You're going to read it like, okay, I'm reading chapter one, but who would read a novel or who would read a, a good mystery and read, take something out of chapter one and conclude what this whole book is about to tell us. would you would anybody do that? You've read a lot of books. You know, you're waiting to find out what okay, I got some some, some significant here, but what is that significance exactly? How would I interpret chapter 1? Well, you're going, to chap- you're going to interpret it by chapter 20, the last chapter. And that then is going to interpret. So what we're going to talk about today is how do you read the Bible backwards and forwards. If you're in the early, you're going to read it looking forward. If you're going to, in the back, you're going to fill in some of the details. And you're going to fill in some of the meaning By looking backwards. When you read about the law in Exodus, you're going to read it in light of what the law meant all the way back to Genesis. But then you're also going to read it into how this concept law gets developed and built upon and embellished as we go forward in redemptive history. So that's the most important thing. So this is the key here. If you hear someone say, but you Christians, you know, you, you you know, you, you can't... you got plenty of stuff in your Bible, you know, that should make you ashamed. I'm going to say no, I don't actually, because our Bible isn't a collection of sacred writings; it is a story, a story that is has a a continuity that begins to emerge, and we're going to interpret meaning as from the context of the story as a whole. Now, this is a incredibly. Uh, controversial statement in in the rise of modern liberalism modern liberalism is going to study the bible as distinct books the concept of quote biblical theolo- theology if you're in a liberal context will often be described as bibliography bibliolatry that's the word bibliolatry because you're you're worshiping the bible because you've invested in it a kind of meaning that's holistic and full. And many evangelicals, ouch, I don't want to be an idol of the Bible. I want Jesus Christ to be my idol, right? And yet, no, we're going to say, no, it's not bibliolatry, but it is recognizing the nature of our Bible. And it is unique among all religions that it is that kind of a, of a, of a book. So, that by way of introduction, Um, is going to bring you to what this... So what is it that sort of unifies? Well, you heard Andrew beautifully illustrate it today. This idea of a Zion. Distinct, but never separate from the idea of God's presence. There's place, but there is a place that's always set apart from presence. There's never been a time... You heard him... I loved it, man. It was was wonderful to hear you quoting that stuff. But there's never been this time when there has not been... A presence spirituality to the Christian, to, the, to the, the Bible. There's never been a time when you're saved apart from the very temple presence of God. Sometimes immediately, like in the person of Jesus Christ, sometimes mediated, mediatedly, as in a context of temple or church today, or heaven, when we go to heaven, where Christ is the, of course, uh, sanctifying presence of the Zion of God in, in, in heaven. And he makes it Zion. Without him, he wouldn't, it wouldn't be Zion. Right? And so you see... But that's, that's nothing... You heard it today. That was a great, beautiful illustration of, of what we're going to do here. How do we understand a concept like Zion? How does that develop as it goes through redemptive history? But there's never been a time... See the continuity? Never been a time when there hasn't been some kind of presence wherein God transacts his salvation. The other concept is covenant, and the two are interdependent. Never been a time when God has not established salvation by means of a covenant transaction. Now, I give you those two trajectories. We're going to focus on the covenant today, even as the covenant regulates and describes the temple. But we're going to focus on the covenant, and this is the way I've already said more to you than you even have, you probably even appreciate. Already. You are light years away from what we just, if you could just buy into what I just said, already you're light years away than the -the run-of-the-mill evangelical walking down the street, who's still proof texting their Bible, who's still picking stuff out of it in order to find a rule of faith and practice, rather than reading it holistically within its redemptive historical context. And already I hope you now have a retort to those who say your Christianity is no different, your religion is no different, just look at your Bible. Yeah, but I'm going to interpret the Bible. With a method that respects how the Bible tells us to interpret it, not as just a simple collection saying a collection of sacred writings, but as a book like a narrative, a story, wherein we read it. In, so we have now. I mean, some of you Sunday school people, how many books in the Bible? God, y'all are good. Sixty-six. I swear, I went through similar I still, could, I don't think I've ever heard that number. I, I just it just evaded me somewhere. Sixty-six. That's cool. I just learned something today. Thank you. Sixty-six what? Books? I'm not going to use the word books. I'm going to use the word chapters. I'm going to remember that the author of each chapter, though distinct, are never separate from the author of the whole novel, who is God. That is not bibliography, bibliolatry, I should say. That is Belief in a one God who transcends all history, who reveals himself through that mystery that we talked about last week called inspiration, where God is joined into humanity. And so the whole Bible is like an incarnational process. The Word became flesh in Christ, but the Word becomes the flesh vernacular of the people in the various humanities that god uses to write it but it's still god that writes it so that's our understanding we're going to be talking today then another word could be about what we call biblical theology now again if you're coming out of a liberal philosophical camp you're going to take offense at me saying that a biblical no there's the theology of isaiah there's the theology of ezekiel there's the theology of paul pauline theology we're going to say no there is a biblical theology and that's what's going to answer every question that I just presented to you. Holy war, prosperity theology, the, 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 the definition of, of Zion, Israel, etc. cetera. We're going to say there's a biblical theology. There is one ultimate Israel. And we're going to use the narrative approach to do it. Any questions about what I just said by way of introduction? Give me a chance to drink some coffee. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't say it in the say, they're just different examples. I have four or five examples. And there's, what, several of them here. Maybe you weren't here. Any other thought? And so those are just examples I'm using where, yeah, if you just read your Bible as a proof text, you could say these things. It's not like these people don't have passages they hang all this stuff on. All right, well, let's, let's look at this very briefly. So covenant. What is a Covenant. Well, one way to describe it is it is a gracious condescension. Now, by condescension, I don't mean, that's not a negative word. I mean that he is bringing himself to our level in a very gracious way. A gracious condescension by God in order to establish a redemptive relationship with humanity that is based on objective terms, objectively satisfied, in order to preserve the gracious nature of human redemption in relation to God. Notice our word objective. Things that are not... The covenant is something God makes, and it's outside of ourselves, even if it's how we relate to God. Another term for this would be a kind of legal or forensic relationship to God. Whereas there's this objective law, with that law comes certain sanctions, curses, and benefits attached to the keeping of that law, and it's a forensic or legal kind of transaction And here's the way our confession says it. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of a covenant. So what is a covenant? Well, again, think of it's really a contract. That's really all it is. It's just a contract. Or it's a Last will and testament, if you will. It's like a, a, a will. You could use it that way. It's a legal, obje- it's an objective set of rules, laws, etc., defining how we relate to God. Um, I don't want to spend too much time here. It's all on the website here that you can go into it. But it's at least important to know that in the period when there was the writing of the Bible, There was a very distinguished pattern. If you were to look at the contract, just like if you're a lawyer here today, I'm sure that you look at a mortgage contract or whatever, you'd probably immediately be able to wrap off, well, every mortgage contract has blank, 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 blank. Well, this was a contract how nations were born. If you were a great king and you you, you conquered a, a piece of territory, You would use a contract similar to this in order to establish a relationship between that territory and the king. It's kind of like a constitution, if you will. That's a contract. And it took on these forms. Now, if you want to read your Bible like a text proof, and you're in the middle of, say, the Scopes trial, you're going to read Genesis 1. You're going to be looking for, okay, let me see if I can get some stuff here to, to bash down these secularists over here. But what if the Bible has nothing whatsoever to do with, this, with, with science, as modern science as we know it? Or even, even, what if chapter one really doesn't have, even if it's rooted in history, has nothing to do with history? What if we understand the Bible as it's written as a covenant? Well, every covenant would have a preamble. This is where the treaty maker would say, Here's who I am, this is my name. This is my debt. this is my debt. I am the great king of. You know? Then you'd have a historical prologue. Let me tell you the great feats that I have accomplished. Let me tell you the great places I have conquered. Let me, let me show you what kind of king I have proven myself to be over the history of my existence. That's a historical prologue. Then you got these covenant requisites. Let me tell you, for those people who come under my protection and rule and care, here are the laws, here are the rules. <laughs> And attached to those rules would be these sanctions. Do this, and you do you get this. Do that, and you will get that. Blessings and curses. And then you'd have these instructions about how you're going to remember this contract. What kinds of rituals are going to be required that you would, where are you going to keep this contract in safekeeping, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then there would be at the end an oath. A ceremony of oath. Now that informs not just the it of salvation, it informs how we are going to interpret the it of salvation. How are we going to read our Bible? And I show you here, Deuteronomy, which is of course the, you know, the, re- the, the renewal of the covenant, it perfectly follows what I just showed you which perfectly follows what was very common to society in that day. So that if you were a a convert to Christianity, it would make sense to you. You'd say, yeah, I got it. I get what's going on here. It's interesting that the same Deuteronomy pattern is found in Genesis 1 all the way through Exodus. Think of those as, you know, two parts to the same, you know, revelatory aspect or, or whatever. And you see it right there. Oh, and there you go again. So now, are you going to proof text chapter one? Are you going to look in there and try to derive from that how God created the world? Or are you going to look at that and say, no, this is about naming God? And sure enough, you'll find poetry, you'll find symbolism, etc. Then the second creation story picks up with these ten ola taladote phrases. This, these are the histories are, these are the generations are, and what you're learning now is the part two of the covenant. You're going into historical uh, preamble. You're going to go in there and say, okay, let me see what God has done that brings us to, Isra- uh, to the Exodus uh, covenant making. So you've got to read now Genesis 2, verse 4 and following, and you'll find, and I'm not going to go into it, but you'll find these, these ten histories Histories that all speak to God's power to bless and to curse. To, bring, to, to guard his people and to curse those who rejected him. So that by the end of that, you're saying, you do not want to be on God's bad side. I mean, it really gets you there. And you want to be on his good side. And these folks that, that were of the Seth line, look at them, man. They just prosper, 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 prosper. These people who are on the Cain side. Blah, 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 blah. You see? And it just goes on and on. And now you're reading it covenantally. Now you're reading the Bible as the Bible was written. Not as a collection of sacred writings, but as a covenant. So we get into that. How's this going to change the way you're? you're learning a lot here. This is just teaching you stuff about it. You're learning how to interpret it. So you come to the prophets. How many of you think the prophets are foretellers? Isn't that what we hear? Come on. You're afraid to say it, aren't you? I know every one of you do. Come on. Well, 2% maybe, mostly. 98% of the prophets are doing what a good lawyer would do with my will. They're just executing it. They're saying, here's what what Preston says he wants to happen. Here's what we're going to do. And if you don't do it, God said that this is what's going to happen to you. Sanctions. Remember those sanctions? Blessings and curses? Now, what if this whole story of covenant is put into a outward, tangible, geopolitical relationship with God? That if you were to stop at the end of, say, you know, Exodus or at the end of, say, David, well, I guess we would have rightfully, we would rightfully claim that there is a geopolitical place over in the Palestinian area that belongs to God's people. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, already back even in Exodus when it speaks of a prophet greater than Moses. Today we were quoted about David and how this one is coming after David that would secure a reality that transcends everything that God had promised David in a geopolitical sense. You've already got the clues. you already got the keys. They're everywhere. That there's something coming. That chapter 6 is not the end. Or chapter, I don't know, how many in the Old Testament? Some of you real Bible geeks, tell me. You had 66, what was it? God, you're so good. How many of you are saying that because you're you're, you're Sunday school teachers or something like that? You had to be. Isn't it cool? You know more about it than I do. That's good. So there's 39 Old Testament books. Is that what I heard? All right. What if it stopped there? Well, we could have, the criticism of being a jihadist would fit because we would hold to holy war and holy war be defined in geopolitical terms but it doesn't stop there and so the prophets are less foretellers of history as they are often thought of as a covenant executor you have lawsuits there's a particular genre in in the old in in the ancient near east called you know the covenant lawsuit a lot of those Strong condemnation sorts of passages that you would turn to and the prophets would be if you read them they would be in the form of a lawsuit. They'd follow the indictment phase. They had every phase that you would think of if you were to go to court. And off you go. And then there would be promises of restoration, etc. So the book of Hosea. This covenant theme continues. The book of Hosea. It's formed in the same structure that i just described with you about those st- phases of a covenant we're going to read it then like a covenant we're not going to read it like what come on y'all y'all it's getting to be a mantra here but for good thank you a collection of sacred writings abstracted from a narrative a story a covenant and so here we go well how do you relate the old and the new then Are we talking about two covenants or one? No, this is tricky. The pre-redemptive and the redemptive is one way to think about the two covenants. You have the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And they can sound as though that means there's two distinct covenants. I think that probably miscommunicates. The covenant of works the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and to him and his prosperity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience and you see that strain going all the way through the Bible that we are saved by grace through works no we don't yeah we do yeah we do but Adam failed humanity fails now what did God do? did he say ah screw that one (laughs) that didn't work phase 2 or you know covenant 2 not quite the covenant of grace is described this way in our confession man by his fall having made himself incapable of life by that covenant the lord was pleased to make a second See, there's that language. Commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained into eternal life as his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Now again, I'm going to just beg, that, that though I don't agree, disagree with anything that just stated here, that, that it's not as though the old one was annulled in the sense that we're no longer saved by works. It's that the old one if you will, apart from the promise of grace and the, and the coming of the Messiah, would have been in, incapable of saving us. In our sin, it would have been incapable of saving us. You see that? We couldn't keep it. So God keeps it. And what's really diff- interesting here. And let me read this little passage by Klein, which I think is really helpful. So perhaps better, it's the promise of grace which then maintains the importance of works obedience in getting the blessings of covenant. In other words, Christ did not come and say, I've come to abolish the law, the covenant. He came and said, I'm coming to fulfill it. Okay, so therefore, when we read the Bible, we're not going to be antinomian, say all laws are bad. There is a large swath of quote, evangelical, gospel-centered movement Christians who are speaking now as if law is a bad word. You know, the scripture says, oh, how I love thy law. Even Paul, when he speaks of law, he's almost always speaking of the, of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that was formed with the geopolitical nation of Israel. And, he's, and, he, and he tells you why that can't save you, which it can't, this geopolitical covenant with Israel. But it's not that the law was bad, he says. He says the law was a tutor. This geopolitical outward typology that Israel had mistaken and missed what it was directing us to, which was the ultimate covenant fulfilled in the ultimate Messiah had gotten lost. And he shows it in Abraham, etc. So let me just show you this. Here's the way uh, uh, Old Testament uh, theologian Meredith Klein says it. The difference between the pre-redemptive and redemptive covenant is not then that the latter substitutes promise for law. The difference is rather that redemptive covenant adds promise to law. Redemptive covenant is simultaneously a promise administration of a guaranteed blessings and law administration of blessings dependent on obedience with the latter foundational. The weakness of this traditional designation, covenant works, for the pre-redemptive covenant is that it fails to take account of the continuity of the law principle in redemptive revelation, and therefore is not a sufficiently distinctive term. The principles of works continues into redemptive covenant administration, not only in the sense already stressed that the blessings of redemption are secured by the works of a federal head who must satisfy the law's demands, but in the sense, too, that none of the many represented by Christ attains to the promise consummation of the covenants' of beatitudes, except he attains to that holiness without which man does not see God. Coherence can be achieved in covenant theology only by the subordination of grace to law. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that there is a covenant that was established with humanity, a creation covenant. It's still in effect, guys. It's still in effect. And you see the legal aspect of that covenant, it becomes clear to us what would happen if we didn't have the promise, if you just trace the geopolitical history of Israel. They never really get comfortable in that promised land. There's a skirmish after skirmish after skirmish. They're, they're you know, isolated from it, et cetera. So you see this aspect of the law, the creation covenant, that's, that's always in effect And as a tutor, according to Paul, we see that in the sense of it being exasperating in the geopolitical typology of the nation of Israel in relationship to the world and God. But then you also see the promise. Now, let me give you a little clue about that. How would you know the difference? It always comes down to who swears the oath. Do you remember who swore the oath in Genesis Adam. Not Eve, Adam. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In this marriage union, Adam gave himself as the covenant executor to Eve. Then we begin to get to strange language as early as Genesis 3, that Eve seems to be a bigger persona than just a person. Because from her womb comes the seed of who? The Ultimately, the Messiah. Eve is then The church of Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 5. And this covenant swearer, taking upon himself, kill me. I will will suffer the consequences of the covenant. I will fulfill the covenant, Adam is saying. And he fails as our first covenant head. Awaiting the second covenant head that's born out of the seed, the redemptive history of God's church, comes forth the Messiah. And by the way, this is what Paul picks up in 1 Timothy, where he says, and childbirth now saves you, speaking to women. He doesn't mean you, a particular woman. You've got to read it redemptive historically. Salvation comes from the womb of a woman. Vis-a-vis the woman who now is the personification of the church, the Israel of God, who God gives a second head who accomplishes what the first head didn't accomplish. Adam 1, Adam 2. Read Romans 5. I'm a little ahead of myself, but I'm giving you this big picture. Think about what, what would go wrong in your interpretation if you didn't get that. First of all, what would you do with the 1 Timothy passage that talks about women being saved through childbirth? Oh my gosh. This is getting, I mean, we're, we're getting in some deep trouble here. How many children, God? Oh, yeah, I remember, you know, the quiver is full, taking a poetic imagery out of Hebrews, now you got to have five kids. Got to have five. That's going to save you. Oh, man, it gets horrible, doesn't it? If we don't know how to read our Bible covenantally. And on it goes. So think about it this way Who takes the oath? There is a covenant that God makes with Israel where all of Israel comes and and Hebrews describes the event as an ominous event when Israel takes the oath of covenant. That Israel takes the oath that we will execute this covenant and the sanctions, its blessings and curses will be predicated upon us. And Hebrews chapter 12 says, man, that was an ominous day. He talks about the lightning and the dark clouds. They were foreboding circumstances there and thankfully that oath was related to a geopolitical a temporal outward relationship with God between Israel and we see what happens when they took the oath and it tutored them according to Paul it tutored them to the point of exasperation concerning their sins where they according to Paul and I'm really going through his argument his amazing brilliant argument in Romans where he says who will set me free from this body of death this this word, I, I, I. He's going through the dip. There's another example. I just can't stop, man. It's just so cool. Just start reading the Bible, chapter 5, on through chapter 7 or 8. And try reading it in a kind of collection of historical sayings. I, Paul, before the law... Really? When were you born, Paul? Weren't you born there in the first century? See, it would make sense. I, ego, the Greek word. He's I in a figurative sense. I. As... Speaking in solidarity with the history of God's church. I, there was a time when before the law, I didn't know my sin. After the law, I knew it. He's talking about the mosaic typological covenant. And that covenant which tutored him to see his sin. And exasperated him to the point where he would cry out by the end of chapter 7, Who will set me free from this body of death? Which gets you to what? Another covenant executor. Someone else who will swear the oath. Not sworn by the church, i.e. Eve. Not Eve and then Israel the church swearing it. No, a second Adam will swear it. Where do we see that? We see it in passages like Genesis 17. Where God swears the oath. Prefiguring, of course, Jesus Christ. That's the argument we've been hearing about in Galatians. You can't annul the oath that God, by the lamps, swore walking through the slain calves of sacrifice. We can't annul that by this temporal geopolitical law. And Paul is doing some deep, deep level covenant theology here. Helping his people see. That when you read the Old Testament, you got to distinguish between the typological, temporal, geopolitical, material Israel. And then there is a eternal and spiritual Israel that might be a part of that Israel that's called a remnant Israel. And Paul will say these amazing things. And if you don't read covenantally, you won't understand it. Where he says, well, you know, not chapter 9. You know, not all Israel is Israel, right? You do know that. Reeves, you knew that, don't you? That not all Israel is Israel. And you're going, huh? Makes total sense. If you just read your whole Bible. That there is an outward and typological and geopolitical Israel. And then there is that which belongs to that, a remnant Israel. Who are saved by grace through faith in the promise given to Abraham. And who's part of that line not the line of the, you say the works righteousness, temporally speaking. So it's true. Temporally speaking, you can read a lot of Old Testament, like we did in Esther, and you can hear a history where there is a temporal history going on with Israel that therefore was illustrated by things like holy wars, which in the New Testament is going to be stuff like not go and slaughter whole groups of people, slaughter the sin every bit of it that is within you put to death your sin die with christ kill every bit of evil that's in you and the only way you can do that is by grace through faith in christ who exhausts even sin he he his atoning sacrifice accomplished what we could not accomplish by putting to death our sin all of it read hebrews chapter 12 read romans chapter 7. You know, just read and you'll see this stuff coming everywhere. So this is the big picture here. Depending on who swears, the covenant is gracious or righteous or works righteousness. I'll give you a couple of underlines here. That a covenant may be defined as a relationship under sanctions. It is the swearing of the ratification oath that provides an identification mark, a clue, by which we can readily distinguish the divine covenants of scripture between a law covenant and a law covenant attached with the covenant of promise the second covenant if you will as long as you understand it it fulfills the first one it doesn't annul it so we have this thing the first adam failed the second adam succeeded it's really simple adam's marriage with eve is explicitly related to the human divine marriage covenant evidenced by paul's use of genesis 2:23 and ephesians 5:31 saying this is a great mystery and I am applying it to Christ and his church. Verse 32. Now how would you say that? If you read it like a collection of wisdom sayings. Sacred rule of sayings? I'm going, whoa, man, I'm, I'm the husband here. I'm a pretty big deal. You know, you wife, you're just the church. Or you're going to realize that marriage itself is a typology. That's why the Catholic tradition understandably wanted to call it a, sac- a sacrament. Because there was a sign and the thing signified attached to it. Now, we don't go that far, and I won't go into that now, but it is a very sacred institution, worth saving, by the way, because of that nature of its redemptive purpose in redemptive history in the covenant. So I've said a lot real quick here, um, because, I, and I'm, we're doing good on time, actually. Um, I'm going to start here in a minute, the big picture, but let me just stop and see if there's some good questions. Come on, ask me some questions. You can't understand all this. It's all right, I promise. This is I mean, this is one lecture that should be a whole semester. I'll ask a question. Yeah. What about for the people who don't have the advantage of the whole Bible? Say somebody who you know lived before Christ's coming. Lived before Christ's coming? So yes. the Old Testament people, right. you're thinking. Yeah. How, how would they see the whole picture if mm-hmm. didn't have the mm-hmm. benefit of the... Well, they wouldn't have seen it if you mean by that, that they had full redemption, I mean full revelation. In fact, that's why the, the apostles were just gleeful about living in the age that they lived because they had begun to see what the previous generations could not see. So on the one hand, I want to say they didn't see it in, in terms of its full seed to, to, to birth phase, if you will. But they definitely saw it in the promises. They definitely had it in the promises. They had it in the institutions. They had the sacrificial system, for instance, starting all the way back with Genesis, that shows you that Adam and Eve are saved by what? By grace through faith in the promise of God that was ritualized by the covering of a slain animal's carcass, which... Covered them with a new clothing, if you will, that that covered their nakedness. I mean, it's all there in Genesis three. You could, and and though you might not understand, okay, there's going to be this guy named Jesus that's going to come to the city of Nazareth. Da, da 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 da. They would have known that they would have known. For instance, by the time you get through Cain and Abel, that one relied on the sacrifice provided by God to get saved. Cain didn't. He were, He relied on his works righteousness. And not understanding that it wasn't about who brings the, the, the vegetables. It's about who puts their faith in the sacrificial system that God has instituted after the fall. You see, they would have it right there already. And they, that's what they would. So we would say that all people who did not have the new covenant were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as he is, is uh, foreshadowed and taught about as early as Genesis 3. And then it keeps it building. By the time you get, by the way, to the Exodus and you get into the period of the law, oh, Jesus Christ is all over the place now. You got a type, like the foreshadowing of Christ in Moses, you got the foreshadowing of Christ in Noah, you got the foreshadowing of Christ in the law itself and the love of the law, which is given salvific virtues in the Psalms 119. And somehow this law will save us, but saved in a manner that we're going to be declaring the grace of God, not the works of, the, of humanity. It's it's all over the place. But again, it it wouldn't be in 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 the full sense. And that's exactly what Hebrews celebrates, isn't it? That, man, let me tell you about something that's all in the Old Testament, but now Christ is greater. A greater revelation. I love that song, Ferris Lord Jesus. If you think about it, that's what that song is saying. That there's many manifestations of God's revelation through creation and through redemption. But ultimately, Christ is the fairest of them all. That is to say, the the ultimate, uh, not the penultimate. Does that answer your question? Okay. Other good questions. That was a good one. Yeah. Andrew? (laughs) Well, I mean, I could, I, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, first of all, we can say, as we've already talked about, it was a condescension of God that enabled him to communicate with us what salvation is. It becomes a vehicle where he is incarnating himself, his revelation in a common vehicle if you will a common way of thinking about transactions so it was a really beautiful incarnation i mean the word is an incarnate story the word that becomes flesh through the vernacular of the people that's one but secondly i would say and is that if grace is going to be grace there has to be an objectivity to that grace that is not related to any transaction that involves me personally I mean, in other words, if all we were to talk about is my experience with God, my obedience with God, think a subjective, which is what the temple's all about. The temple is the power. You know, if Klein calls the covenant the paradigm of our salvation, calls the temple the power of our salvation. The two always come together, paradigm and and temple and, and power. So if I was focusing on the power, which is what a lot of evangelicals are doing today. I know I'm sounding very critical, but... I'm just, I'm just coming out of the closet here. I've been trying to be gracious about all this, but there is such heresy going around. And now in, in increasingly in, with tags to it that sound like us, and it's not. And, I'm, and I think the world's getting a bad picture of us. So I'm, I'm making the distinction, But so I hate to be critical. But so I would say with all this talk about me experiencing the transforming power of Christ, which is right, that's all temple language. We need to remember that my salvation is not based on me experiencing and feeling and and doing and all of this stuff with the power of God that that does get talked about in Ephesians. If you go, he he talks about covenant in chapter 1, all the stuff that was accomplished by Christ objectively to satisfy the objective covenant, wherein we just sit back and say, yes, I want it applied to me, versus then he says, but hey, in addition to this covenant— and the justification is a doctrine of a covenant, by the way. That's a forensic term. I'm praying for the power of Christ in your life. And then what does he start talking about in chapter one and two? He starts talking about the church, the temple, where you're going to get the power, the means of grace. You can't have salvation apart from presence. You can't have salvation apart from God. But that would be my answer uh, in general terms that apart from a covenant, there would be no grace, there would be power. But there would not be that transaction that took place between the second head Adam, who takes the oath again that Adam took, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, as an I will put me to death for the as the curse of the the sanctioned curse, and and then that transaction was was received by God the Father as sufficient to accomplish the covenant, so that now we are sitting there and we're we're saying. I want that applied to me. We did nothing for it. Covenant covenant is objective. That's my answer. Beautifully objective. In a world that's now obsessed with subjective, it's a beautiful thing. You think that helps? These are great questions. Yes, you... That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's a great question. It really is. i you and I always think very similarly. So believe me, I've been there a million times. Um, yeah, God couldn't you figure another way to do this? I mean, come on. You know, there were these human beings back then that were just decimated, etc. Um, and so, you know, that's where I take some comfort in, um, in Romans 9. I, there's a mystery. But in Romans 9, the answer that comes closest for me is Paul concurring that there are those who are vessels of wrath. And his point is, and he's referring, but not only is that true for nation states in the old typological system, but of course he's referring that even to eternal judgment. It's, it's, it's something we have to speak with very tenderly. But here's the answer. And it's every bit of me that's humanistic hates it. But the answer that just offends my humanism is that God has declared that even human beings have a purpose greater than their own personal flourishing. That there is a purpose in our life if God is God, and he is truly worthy of being revealed as we say he is, if as a, if a, if as a means to reveal God, to be the true and living God, there requires the vessels, the vessels of wrath, then I concede to it. I believe in it and trust that God somehow, when I get fully sanctified, I'll get all this. Because I don't get it all yet. But that's, that's the closest I can get is Romans 9, and there's other passages as well, where somehow I believe that without that story, without those vessels of wrath, God and his salvation would not be fully revealed, enough to where we could be saved. And I could start to make, having been in the scripture now for pretty, pretty consistently now for a while and studying it this way, I can begin to make a little bit of a sense of that, just a little bit and say, okay, I guess there are attributes about God that I could not understand, that I could not glorify him for. I could not glorify him for justice. I don't know how I could do it, except that there was justice somewhere revealed. So there are are attributes of God that are revealed through that story. And I also see the way that story is, is accomplishing, but it gets back to our very difficult doctrine, but it's true because if not, you lose God, which is the doctrine of election, the doctrine of sovereignty. I mean, you you see what happens in this little web. You know, we've been doing this in theology every week and everybody's starting to go, wow, this really is a web. I mean, everything's linked to everything here. And you just start picking it apart. You just pick one little thread out and all of a sudden the whole thing starts to unravel. What we call a coherent understanding of God. So that's my best shot, Evan, but I'm telling you, it's not going to satisfy you. It doesn't satisfy me, but, but that's where I, I leap in faith, believing that God has proven himself trustworthy in so many ways where I'm confident in it. I'll trust you on this one, God, even though, man, I'm just kind of going, whoa. You know, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> Let me uh, take the last couple of minutes here and um, just kind of give you a little bit here. So you have a creation covenant. You have a redemptive promise added to that covenant or redemption covenant. You see that revealed in the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, you see it in the typological covenants. Again, the Abrahamic covenant getting to the promise. You see the typological getting to the, tip, uh, the mosaic covenant with the nation state Israel. Um, I'm getting you some real practical stuff and this thing's not moving now. Oh, I see why because that thing's up there. Um, there's this ultimate fulfillment of, of the... Uh, where, is, where is the, the geopolitical fulfill? We heard about Zion today. You know, I would love to have said in that sermon, you probably could, you know, you were, you were trying to, did you notice how he was struggling with trying to distinguish, on the one hand, there is a, there is a place, you kept, there is a place called Zion, it certainly was in the Old Testament, and there is in the, in the New Testament, we call it heaven, right? But then that place could never be separated, can't exist apart from the presence of Jesus Christ who was the ultimate Zion of God. You, I love the way you were wrestling with that you know, I would use the Christology of a language. It's distinct but never separate, you know, kind of a thing. But, the guy, but the, notice that. That where is, you know, those people who were trying to get to the promised land through holy wars. Remember that story? Esther, for instance? All the holy wars trying to get over to, to quote Zion, the promised land. Hebrews chapter 11 says what? What were they really looking for? A better country. Heaven. Heaven is that promised land. You see? How do we get into heaven? Jesus Christ is the Israel of God, the Zion of God. Christ is the Israel of God. He becomes the covenant head, federally representing all of God's people in order to accomplish for us what it takes to go to heaven. And his presence is the power of heaven itself. The sun that shines in the heavens is Christ himself, we're told. See, this is the paradigm and the power coming together. And so you see this general thesis going through. Um, there's a diagram that I wanted to show you. And again, because we're, I don't want to spend too much time here, you can just go look for it. It's here. Um, and what you'll see, it's a nice summarizing diagram, but you'll see wherever there's a line and not a dotted line on the top, that's a geopolitical context where there was holy war, temporally speaking. You see it in Genesis, in, the, in Eden. You see it in the Ark, literally. You see it in, in, in the nation of Israel, the Mosaic context. But then over here where you see this dotted line, that's where you are not, that is speaking of God's kingdom, but not a geopolitical kingdom in terms of its covenant understanding. Even though the, well, I'm not going to go through that. You could read some of these journal observations that will be very helpful to you when you start trying to interpret all this. But what I wanted to do is um is just walk you through then the steps i've kind of dealt with the continuity discontinuity but but you can read through this yourself by the way it's not law versus gospel not if you understand it in the it is true that it's law if you mean temporal geopolitical mosaic context of law yeah it is law versus gospel But if you mean law going back to Genesis, the idea of a covenant contract with stipulations, etc. No, it's not law versus gospel. It's law fulfilled by gospel. You see, and that's why you got to keep that. The key here is think temporal versus eternal. So are we in a holy war today? You bet we're in a holy war. Our battle is what? Against spiritual principalities and powers. So I'm going to take everything learned from Esther and everything learned from Judges about all this warfare, holy warfare stuff, and I'm going to look to the new covenant to discern what is our sword, what is our breastplate, what is our whatever you want to look for, and say, where do I find those spoken of in the new covenant? And what, by the way, that armor of God, by the way? that it's been terribly it's true that it speaks to all these aspects of the gospel but ultimately the armor of god if you're reading it right it comes out of isaiah 5 and it's jesus christ is he's basically saying jesus is our warrior put on the armor of god put on christ by means of faith hope and all that stuff but put on christ and so there's this idea it's not temple to no temple it's temple made with hands on the holy hill of jerusalem Versus now, a temple not made, not defined by the, by, the, by the physical architecture of the place like it was. That's not built with hands. But a temple that's defined by what? Christ, the cornerstone of the temple. He's the cornerstone. A foundation built by the apostles, which is now what kind of foundation? Not a temporal foundation, but a foundation of, of doctrines and teachings you know, and, and rituals that are all put in place. In order that we, the church of Jesus Christ, can say, rightly, we are the temple of God. So it's not no law. It's not, back to this question, law versus gospel. It's not temple versus no temple. You're looking for these continuity, discontinuity themes. And that's what I'm interacting with here if you want to go back and read it. And I really encourage you to do this. We have the prophet, priest, and king. But notice when we get into things that we understand today. Sabbath. There's a covenantal understanding of Sabbath. A day which we celebrate now, what? The accomplishment of Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ's resurrection. So we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, not Saturday, the last day of the week. As it reflects still that we're we're still Sabbatarian. We still believe in a day set apart from others wherein we worship God. It's not no yes no it's both and we are sabbatarian but we we worship we, we we celebrate sabbath now on the day of resurrection the day when the redemptive work was accomplished which is what we celebrate in the old one for the geopolitical remember that was the day when it was all done the seventh day was old we he rested he rules now it's he rested he rules on the first day the resurrection of christ Same thing with um, renewal confirmation. This gets you to your issue of sacraments and baptism. It's not entrance sacrament, no entrance sacrament. It's entrance sacrament now in baptism replacing circumcision to reveal the new water of of the Holy Spirit era and giving us faith to believe to all the nations, etc. Well, I will go through that. Um, One last little point to point out for you to go back and look at it. You really want to look at this right here, this little section here. This will spell out the typifications, things that are typified and where they go in the New Covenant. We'll talk about the discontinuity of temporal, but the continuity of promissory aspects that are spiritual, revealed in Jesus Christ. And so here's the bottom line. Um, You should be able, with this method, you will always want, here's the method issue. First, you always want to understand Scripture In its organic unity with the whole of Scripture. That's what it means to interpret Scripture with Scripture. The entire counsel of God's Word must take the whole story into account at all times. God's revelation is God-known vis-a-vis redemptive history. We've talked about that. So what do you do? Here are your two steps. Step one, read your passage and understand the covenant that is currently being spoken under. If you're reading in the Old Covenant under a Mosaic context of covenant you need to read it like that. If you're reading in Genesis under the Abrahamic covenant, you need to read it like that. What was promised? What wasn't promised? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you need to take step two and say, okay, now how does this covenant translate into that covenant? In the old typological covenant, you could lose your kingship, Allah Saul, if you don't destroy all the inhabitants of a land that you conquer. Under the new covenant, you're going to be destroyed if all sin is not destroyed in you and over you. Which then bounces us to the promise of Abraham and the promise of the seed of the woman who will accomplish that for us. So that now in James, you've got to read James. You remember that prayer, the prayers of a righteous person will be healed? You better read that covenantally. Or you're going to have a faith, all that stuff, thinking that if you're in the hospital, you've been sinning. And you better say, hold it. I'm righteous now under the new covenant by faith in Christ alone. I'm going to be healed. It's a guarantee you'll be healed. And if you'll notice James, he starts talking about the resurrection in heaven as a possible place where you will be healed if not before. I'll call it a day. May God bless us. Let's pray. Lord, bless this food now and thank you for our fellowship. And thank you, Lord. Wow, what a beautiful, glorious salvation you've revealed in Scripture and, Father, we confess in solidarity with the church, especially of the modern era, that we have so taken it casually, so taken it for granted. Um, help us, Lord, to love study and learning and, and, and the knowledge that comes for, pours forth from the Holy Scriptures and help us understand it as it brings us to Christ, we pray. Amen.